Last week we started this conversation about the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, what do we mean when we refer to the sufficiency of Scripture? I think we can quote Scripture itself. We can quote Scripture and be confident in it, right? That we can be confident that Scripture has what we need, the information that we need for for all of life and godliness, right? It's breathed out, Timothy wrote, or, or Paul wrote to Timothy. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So a purpose of Scripture is to make us complete and equipped for what God would have us do. And Peter encourages us in Second Peter 1, um, uh, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And again, it's through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. So that knowledge of Him comes from God's Word. So our spiritual health as a church and individually really depends upon our view of Scripture. And the degree to which we esteem Scripture influences or affects absolutely everything. But, but we, uh, once we embrace a theology that does not recognize the sufficiency and authority of Scripture and understand what that really means, it, it doesn't take much time to slide into an incorrect understanding and application of the Scriptures. And so we really need to understand why and what it means that Scripture is sufficient and, and truly believe it to be so and, and understand that. Uh, there's a lack of confidence in our churches today in the sufficiency of Scripture regarding its ability to address all of life's issues. It's insufficient to make men and women useful for service. We need more than just Scripture. We need fads. We need gimmicks. We need comedy routines. We need pastors zip line flying down the, the, the sanctuary. We need all kinds of things in addition to Scripture. We need community events. We need all kinds of things that attract people in and entertain them. So what we're, what we're asking for when, when, we, uh, when we entertain people in, in church, we're not looking to entertain them. We're looking to grow them in godliness. That's the goal of, of, of church ministry. The reality is, and it's painful, Christians do not view the scriptures as sufficient. And 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 I and again, we we raise our hand and say, "Yes, I do. Yes, I do." But do we, when the rubber hits the road, when life is hard, do we truly believe that scripture is sufficient to meet our needs and answer the questions that inevitably come up along life's road? We can use scripture to correct someone who's feeling blue. Give them some uplifting passages to encourage them. We can, we can use Scripture to help someone when they're questioning God's goodness or His sovereignty. We can point to verses that proclaim God's sovereignty and creation. Or we can convict someone who's in sin with Scripture. But what about if you're depressed or, or anxious or wrestling with bipolar affective disorder, so-called? Or mood disorders? Scripture's not enough. We need more, is what they're saying. We don't believe that to be so. There are some disorders, some issues in life that will benefit from from um, extra-biblical sources. We, we know that to be true. We know that depression can be helped with medication. We know that schizophrenia has organic and inorganic elements to it. And so medication can help somebody who's on who's, who's a, a schizophrenic. My, my father's sister, my aunt, was a schizophrenic. And um, her... her 
she she would go through phases in her life of of paranoia, of um, of of uh, hyperactivity, of uh, just just remarkable. But I, I'll never forget the day she died. She came by our house to say goodbye, and I've never seen her so lucid, so clear in her head. It was it was amazing. She was so clear. She came by. She thanked my father for this was I was probably seventeen or eighteen, seventeen I think. Uh, she thanked my father for being so kind to her over the years, and then she left. And, and she went out to the cliffs just a few miles from our house, and they found her body um, a week or so later. So she was very clear-headed. But, but, but drugs helped her in her life. We, we recognize that drugs can be helpful. But put bluntly, people very quickly leap to the conclusion that the Bible is fundamentally deficient for the serious issues of life. So how do we get here? We talked last week about the Greek philosophers, how they anchored everything in religion, of some kind at least, God or the gods, but they, they always turn back to scripture, to, to, to religion, to understand the world. But as time progressed, they began to set aside their established practices and bases for understanding the world and turn to their own intellectual autonomy and reason believing that their minds were capable, unassisted of fundamentally understanding the world. We're talking about guys like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. They came to view the world through the eyes of personal experience and understand the world through the eyes of personal experience. We talked about the Enlightenment, which wasn't very enlightening, in the 1600s through the 1800s, teaching that that reason is the primary source of of authority. If If you're thinking a lot this morning, I know it's early still, daylight savings, but... The very label enlightenment should be insulting to you. It's it's an insulting label because they're claiming they were enlightened by reason. God went out the window along with the scriptures and, and, and reason alone became the sole basis for how we understand the world. And even within the church, it came to be believed that scripture is validated by experience. Validated by our own reason, how we understand what we understand Scripture to be communicating. If we don't like what Scripture says, or we just remove that passage from the Bible, or we explain it away as something that it's clearly not. Descartes, Kant, Schleiermacher, they all doubled down on this idea that that they could replace faith with autonomous reason. We can live our lives independently of external forces. We can live our lives thinking through and reasoning through all of life's issues, every dimension and angle, independently of religion. You know, they talked about it being independent of external forces, but the reality is it was a wholesale attack on religion. That's what that was. And of course, traditional theology went out the window as philosopher-theologians came to reject the authority of Scripture as the infallible Word of God. This was the beginning of rationalism. Meaning, fi- finding meaning in life free from the shackles of religion. Free from the restraints of religion. And we see that effect on our churches today. You ever had a conversation with someone who had a religious quote-unquote experience and that experience contradicts scripture but it's their experience, right? I, I know somebody... I don't know if I mentioned him last week or not. He, he tried to kill himself, tried to commit suicide. And he was in the hospital. He failed. And he shot himself in the stomach with a shotgun. And uh, he, it didn't kill him. I, I don't even know how that happens, but that's what he did. And, and he was in the hospital. 
And uh, he cried out, God, if you're real, prove yourself. Show yourself to me. And God came to him, he says, in a theophany. God spoke verbally to him. I, I don't believe that happens today. But how do, you, how do you argue with somebody who truly and wholeheartedly believes that to be so? His experience contradicts what Scripture teaches. What does uh, Scripture teach? That God has spoken in His Word, spoken clearly and sufficiently in His Word, and that God is not continuing to speak today. Not in, not in the audible sense of speaking out loud to people. He talks to us, He communicates with us through Scripture. Where is that? I, I'd, I'd have to look it up to give you some specifics, but I'm happy to do that. What's that? It's an Acts, I believe. Where, where God closes the canon, closes that, that, that method of communicating. Yes? The question would be, if not audibly to someone today... Um, is it the same necessarily the same thing as the giving of scripture? No. Because that would be the question that I would have about that. Because I do believe that God speaks audibly to the people. I know people who claim to God has spoken to them, and I believe that they're, that they're correct. Okay. And, mm-hmm. um, so what does that what does that speaking look like? I mean, it's, it, it, this is not the time or the place. We could yeah. get into a very long and, and, and extensive discussion about it. The point the point being though that that. That they elevate their experience above what God's word states. Sure, and, and, and anything that and, and that would be the, that would be the test, right? Right. That, that, that if, if they hear something that's contradictory to scripture, then it's not God speaking. Then we've got a problem. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly right. Absolutely. And so, if, if you believe, to your point, yeah. thank you, that that yeah. God does speak to people today, audibly or not audibly, mm-hmm. through the Holy Spirit and, and promptings yeah. and nudgings, or through through clearly understandable, discernible vocalizations. Does does what God say to you today, or, or does that does that work match with Scripture, or does it not? Mm-hmm. But if you hear a voice and that voice is speaking to you, and it's very clear and it contradicts Scripture, what do you do? Most many people that hear that voice will go with the voice because it's a it's an experience that they've personally had. Um, question: Was there any noticeable change in your friend's life after he recovered? Yes. Absolutely, he 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 wholeheartedly believes. He he would call himself a Christian. How about before that? He he was not, and and clearly not. So so there was a change in his life as a result of that experience, which makes it really for somebody like me. I'm a cessationist. That makes it really difficult. But I, I still hold to the to what I believe the Scripture teaches that God is not speaking today, outside of His Word, His written His written Word, and so you have this this experience that changed His life. It changed His life. There's no question. So, and we can talk more. I'll, I will get you some verses, though, some some references. Well, I, I appreciate that because I kind of go along with how He said it. Yeah. So that yeah, and 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 then the. Not necessarily a scripture, but a comfort or whatever. But that comfort, okay, again, not the time or place, but I think that comfort would come from God's word. It would come from, you know, we're we're called to hide his word in our hearts. And and, and that word is then, then God brings to us in times of need. The Holy Spirit will remind us of stuff that we've already brought in through His Word. He's speaking to us through His Word. I, I believe that with all my heart. The, the Holy Spirit will remind us, will bring us to remembrance of things that God has already communicated to us. But that communication was in His Word. It wasn't. It wasn't some extra biblical uh, revelation, some ex, un, un, extra biblical uh, information 
um, whether it aligns with scripture or not, um, you know, that, that would be the position I take. So, but I, I recognize other people would have a different opinion on that or a different so position I would on that. Like yeah, we'll work different. on that. We'll put, we'll pull those together for you. Absolutely. That's a good question. If you watch the last speaker of the second day, it was HB Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spoke on that. If you look it up, it's, like March 10th, it's a Shepherd's Conference. It's the last speaker of the day. It's H.P. Charles. He speaks to that point. <laughs> we'll pull together some resources to look through. And you know, th- those resources, I will put money down Nathan has studied in depth and and uh, and still comes to the conclusion he comes to. And that's that's okay. That's, that's good. We're, we're brothers in Christ. We love one another and, and each other. And that's, you know, we can have a difference of opinion in that. And I'll pray for him. <laughs> anyway, we'll, 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 I'll get you some resources. But when we do place our experience over Scripture, we have a problem. But that's what people do when they, they don't believe that Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness. And so countless churches, theological institutions, universities, seminaries are embracing this belief that Scripture is no longer sufficient for us. It's no longer sufficient for life and godliness. John Coe is the guy I quoted last week. He's the professor of and director of spiritual formation at a Christian university here in California. He argues the Bible is inadequate to fully understand the world around us. He says that those of us who believe in the sufficiency of Scripture are overly zealous and are defense of Scripture. We've adopted, he says, a bibliocentric or Bible-centered reductionism of the Christian life, of Christian faith, which focuses upon the sufficiency of Scripture at the, ex- at the expense of attending to the fullness of Revelation. That's a mouthful, and we're going to unpack that a little bit as we go through. Basically, what he's saying is that in, in, in adhering to the Reformation concept of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, we've reduced Christianity to the book in front of us, or in my case, the iPad, the Bible that's sitting in front of us. <laughs> And we've failed to respond to or recognize God's revelation through other sources. We know that God has revealed himself to us in nature, right? We know that. We believe that to be true, right? And we'll talk about that. We're going to, unpack, we're going to talk more about what, what he would call, or what we would call general revelation. is revelation to mankind through, through nature. But the, the argument that John Coe makes is that we're failing to respond to or consider other sources of revelation when we look to Scripture and depend and rely on Scripture alone for or all of life and godliness. He says, and I, I don't remember if I read this part or not, I probably did, conservative theologians are defensive and reactive, retreating from the light of reason. These guys are just so, they just have to be insulting. Retreating from the light of reason and natural revelation to the island of faith. We cling desperately, he says, to the illusion of a Bible alone approach to wisdom. Basically what he's saying, and I'll put it in the common vernacular for us, you're a moron if you believe that the Bible is sufficient to understand the world around us. You're an idiot. It's almost literally what he's saying. If you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life and godliness, you are clinging desperately to an illusion. That's what our top Christian, Christian universities and seminaries are teaching our children, you're clinging desperately to an illusion. Not all schools, obviously, but, but some significant, substantial schools um, that people send their kids to. To answer integrationism. Integrationism is the act of integrating Scripture with other sources 
of information to create a cohesive worldview. To look at the world around us, we need to take scripture and then we need to integrate other sources of information to be able to understand it, to be able to use what God has given us or revealed to us. Integrationists believe that the Bible does not say much about human motivation. One integrationist says, while the Bible provides us with life's most important and ultimate answers, it's not an all-sufficient guide for the discipline of counseling or discipleship. It's a revelation of limited scope. And we're going to talk more about the, 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 the challenge which people have made that the Bible is not encyclopedic in its answers or its, its, its information. It's not an encyclopedia, right? I don't want to teach my son how to ride a bicycle, so I flip to that verse in the Bible to learn how to ride a bicycle. Obviously, it's not encyclopedic in its, in its approach to communicating with us. But I would argue that we can learn much, and I proved it when I was trying to teach my oldest child how to ride a bike on the beaches in Oregon. I can prove from that experience that I could have learned much from Scripture about how to do that. Unfortunately, I didn't apply those lessons well, and, and it wasn't my finest moment. But um, <laughs> The Bible, they say, isn't enough. Simply stated, if you're struggling with grief or depression, or anxiety, an eating disorder, the Bible isn't enough. We need more. You know the DSM, DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's what they use in psychiatry and in psychology, the, biblical, the counselors use it, the Christian counselors use it. Um, DSM-5, I think, is what they're up to. DSM-5R, R for revised. They keep changing it over time to adopt and change to different communi- uh, uh, social pressures, really. Um, it states that if, you, if your spouse dies... And you're still still blue or, or, or struggling with depression two weeks later, you're, you've got you've got a clinical disorder at this point. You're clinically disordered. You've got a mental problem, mental health problem. It says that. It's, so it, so for for we know that God gives us seasons in which we, we respond to life's trials and suffering. And he takes us through that suffering and, and we work through it in a timely manner, as as, as whatever time that God has for us. It takes you six months to suffer through the loss of a spouse, a year, years even. I mean, suffering can become sin. I think we know that, right? We know that you, you, can, you can lose your spouse and, and go into a depression and be in that depression. And, and you can be in sin in that depression. I think, I think we would all agree with that. But it's not... There's no timeline on that. But according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, if you've been in depression for more than two weeks, you're, you've got a mental health issue. And you need, you need medication at that point. So... The writer of Hebrews thinks that Scripture is sufficient. He says, Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He had confidence in Scripture to address the issues of life. The Word of God can do heart-level surgery to heal the broken spirit of the soul in sin. Larry Crabb is a guy that I had the greatest respect for for many years. He's a prominent integrationist. Many books published. You can look them up. Oh, I don't recommend you read his books. He claims to base his Christian counseling on biblical principles. And he's really very convincing. I went to a week-long conference with Larry Crabb back in New Zealand. Very, very convincing in his, in his teaching. But he centers his explanation of human behavior on the unbiblical concepts of yearnings for relational love and significance. Everything comes down to that. Everything in our lives and our hearts comes down to this yearning for relational love and significance. 
He says that we are not our problems. We are not our wounds. We are not our sins. We are persons of radical worth and unrevealed beauty. He said that, that men long have this deepest longing to move and act with power in the world, much like God does. And women have this deepest yearning to reflect God's love. We need the experiences, he says, of significance and true relational love in order to be emotionally healthy. There's nothing in Scripture to substantiate any of that. Integrationists, says Paulison, are fundamentally man-centered. They baptize lusts of the flesh as needs. I need time away from my wife. You've heard, you've heard, I, I need sexual gratification that my wife can't provide for me. I need this chocolate cake that I got in trouble for talking about a few weeks ago. I need whatever it is. We need, have these needs. Charlene's going, what are you talking about? Chocolate cake. They tip their hats to Scripture. But they rely on worldly concepts of psychology and psychotherapy. They turn personal needs into idols, is what they're doing. They're create. They're taking this personal need. I need some alone time away from my family to to regenerate, to re to to to, to get my energy back and to and to become centered back on myself and the world. It sounds kind of nice, I, I guess, but the reality is we turn those into idols. Those needs become idols in our hearts, and then we sin to get them. I get mad when somebody interrupts me while I'm having my quiet time alone, you know. This approach to counseling and discipleship argues that while Scripture is inspired and precious, they'll all argue that, the Christians at least, its main concern is religious as it presents God's redemptive plan for His people and the great doctrines of the faith. Scripture does not address the issues of the heart. But I think, I think we, we, we all agree that Scripture gives us graphic details of lives lived well and lives lived badly, doesn't it? Details and specific instruction in the form of historical narrative, letters, poetry, prophecy, from which we can glean what we need for life and godliness, for discipleship, for soul care. Secular psychology can sometimes provide observational benefits. In fact, psychology is good at observation. We can look to psychology and the insights of psychology in in the observation of people's struggles and trials. They've done a really good job of categorizing uh, our our issues. If you look at the DSM-5, you're going to see a lot of really good information of of understanding where people are at. They, They list a bunch of... So if you're like under depression, they'll have a bunch of possible symptoms. If if you have three or more of these symptoms, then you may be depressed. right? And, that, and that's useful information for us. But it falls down in interpretation and prescription. It does not offer interpretive or prescriptive value. So we need to be careful to differentiate the two. So for example, the body sends signals to the... The brain sends signals to the body in order to produce a d- desired action, perhaps a vocalization. My brain is telling my mouth and my, t- my, my vocal cords and stuff to move in a certain way in order to produce words, right? But it can't tell us why a person chose to move or speak as they did. See the difference? The Bible, says Dr. John Street, always answers the why question with God-derived authority. 
what is a diagnostic issue? What's going on? What, 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 what can we observe? That's diagnostic. But the why question is a soul issue. It's a soul issue. So if, if not the word alone, then what else do we rely upon for authority, for information? What else do we look to? We look to, to, to nature, right? We look to science. We look to technology. We look to the inventions of man. We, we look to extra-biblical sources to understand what's going on in the world. And so the, the early liberal soul care practitioners who were all claiming to be Christian, they wanted to find a biological or a physiological basis for mental health issues. So they looked to science. They were rationalists. They wanted to... They wanted to find the basis for life in materialism, in, in, in the body, in the, in the things of life, the physical stuff. So when somebody had a neurosis, somebody was depressed, you know, remember they're moving away from soul, from, 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 from spiritual, from sin, from scripture. They're moving to physical. They want to understand the world in physical terms, right? And so when somebody's depressed, they don't look to scripture and look to possible Sin issues or, or, or scriptural indicators showing why somebody might be struggling emotionally. Instead, they look to the body and they say, well, if they're depressed, if, if my friend Don is depressed, it must be a physical problem. It has to be physical. It can't be, it can't be emotional or, or it can't be spiritual in nature. It has to be, there has to be a physical cause for that depression. Yes, sir. Well, I was going to say that, yeah, it's, it's the movie that actually wrote this about 10, 10 minutes ago in my, in my book. What's the, what's the, um, problem um, with sort of you know, the mental problems, the, the, the psychological problems that we're discussing right now. The the uh, uh, since the Enlightenment, in large part, they, they they've been searching for a mechanistic mm-hmm. solution. Say everything's if we're materialists, the problem must be in the material itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas the you know, the Bible, what the Bible teaches is that oftentimes it's not mechanistic. It's probably the, the problem is moral. And, and the idea of morality as being a, a, an actual thing out there, that it's not just something we decide, make minds, not just what we prefer, um, but the idea that morality is a real thing that God has given us, um, became, it, it, it's on the outs with the, with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, uh materialists. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we're they're looking for a. I like the way you put that. They're looking for a material answer. Yes. A, a, we're looking at the material to find the the cause or the or the the the, the, the source of a problem. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the material being the body and more specifically the brain. Right? right. They're looking to the material stuff to find the reason or the the uh, the explanation and the solution to the the issues that we have, the difficulties that we're having. Absolutely. And some, and, and there are, that we, we talk about in, in, in biblical counseling, we talk about the inner man and the outer man. We, we understand, just to be really clear, that, that biological issues, let's say you have a chronic pain, chronic pain can lead to depression. We get that. And I'm not saying the word depression doesn't exist and is a real issue either. But chronic pain can lead to depression. The loss of a spouse can lead to depression. Depression can lead to stomach ulcers. Depression can lead to so, by, so so mental health issues can lead to physical issues, and physical issues can lead to mental health issues. There's an interplay there between the body and the soul, between the inner man and the outer man, and without without a question. But to look to the material, to the to the material that we're working with, I like that to find an answer to to our deepest 
emotional problems is 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 inappropriate. We need to be looking to the soul to find out find out problems, figure out what's going on. We need to treat. And the first thing we do when we have somebody come and and, and talk about being terribly depressed or or even even exhibiting bipolar kind of issues where they're, they're swinging from deep depression to mania and back and forth. First thing we do is get a medical workup done because we, we are looking for answers that, that might be rooted in medical and the medical problems of life, right? Or at least may be complicated by or may be causing medical issues. So we do look to medical, to the medical part, the, to the material in, in, in dealing with and treating with the, treating these people. But fundamentally, the argument is that soul care issues are soul care issues. They're, they're spiritual in nature. And that's a bit of a, bit of a generalization and maybe an oversimplification. Um, again, I think of my aunt with schizophrenia. They've shown that schizophrenics have, have f- physically different brain structure. Their frontal cortex, which is, which is the seat of emotion in the brain, their frontal cortex is thinner. And so their, their affect, their emotion is, is very flat. A schizophrenic tends to not have highs and lows emotionally. They tend to be pretty flat. And, 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 and their frontal, they've compared, they've done twin studies where they've sliced open the brains of, of twins, one of which had schizophrenia and one that didn't. And they found that the identical twins, but their brains were different in, in structure. Their, their frontal cortex was thinner, which is really fascinating. But the question then is what came first, the thinner right. cortex or the, uh, or the schizophrenia? Is it a cause or is it a result? A result, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows? And they don't, they don't know, right? Because by the time they're slicing things open, it's a bit late, a bit late to ask the question. <laughs> to John Coe, our friend, I use the word friend loosely, he argued that we can only speak of the sufficiency of revelation when all forms of revelation are taken together. We can't fully understand God's revelation without considering both general and special revelation. So what is special revelation? I figure we'll have somebody, I'll, I'll ask a question, be a good Sunday school teacher. What is special revelation? Special revelation is God's revelation to us in Scripture. In scripture. You're, you're pointing to a notebook with your writing in it. Shame on you. Sorry, I'm teasing you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's when God, you know, God speaking directly to the prophets, to the apostles, giving them information that they couldn't possibly have accessed in any other way. Correct. Special revelation. Thank you. It's the revelation of God given through divinely inspired scriptures. So then, what about general revelation? General revelation. We know in scripture that God has revealed to Himself. It, God is apparent by looking in nature, right? He's revealed Himself to us. This is why we're, none of us are without excuse because we can look to nature and see that there's a Creator. General revelation is the self-disclosure of God to all people through nature and the fundamental makeup of the human creature. Or it's supposed to be. It's been changed. The definition has been changed over the years. But that's what it's supposed to be. The, the definition of general revelation necessarily refers back to God. That's, key, that's a key point to remember. It necessarily refers back to God. It's God's self-disclosure to His people. He has been revealed in creation. He reveals himself, his attributes. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. His handiwork. He has been revealed in creation and he reveals himself through his directing influence in history as well. Job 12.23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nation and he leads them away. God can be seen in his orchestration of, 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 of nations, of political powers, as directing influence in history. 
But the Christian integrationists add knowledge acquired through science and research to that definition of general revelation. That's the key part where they start to fall apart. Actually, they've fallen apart long before that when they throw away Scripture as their sole source of, of, of necessary information. But they, they add knowledge acquired through science and research, through their own rationalistic, self-autonomous interpretation of the world. They're adding that to the definition of general revelation. That's the heart of Christian psychology. The, the search for more information, new information, and some secret that will unlock the power to heal. Scripture may be inspired and precious, and, and I think all Christian integrationists would universally state that Christian is precious, inspired. There's something sweet and unique about it. That, they would say that. But they'd also say that, that the main concern of Scripture is religious and it does not address the issues of the heart. Here's what they say. All truth, you've heard this before, right? All truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Well, is that true? Is it true that all truth is God's truth? That's what they claim. They glean information from general revelation. Information on how to grow and to heal outside of God's word. And if it's true that all truth is God's truth, then we need to honor that truth no matter where we find it, right? Well, yeah, but who's going to determine whether it's true? Whether it's true, and, and do we have the faculty, the understanding, the, the, the ability to understand it rightly? And I, I would argue we really don't. We, we don't. And we're, we're going to look at that in Proverbs in just a moment. Co writes, our friend Co, the Bible does not intend to supplant the wisdom available from natural revelation but only to perfect it. God's Word provides the divine interpretation of aspects of history and nature, but alone God's Word is insufficient. We must turn to the truth, quote-unquote, of general revelation to supplement God's special revelation in His Word. So the question that Code demands is this. Can psychology provide, or sciences, the sciences, provide a legitimate general theory of human nature an explanation for the what's and why's of behavior. Can science, can psychology, provide a legitimate general theory of human nature, an explanation for what, the what's and why's of behavior? Can psychology or psychotherapy diagnose, treat, and provide prognoses concerning non-organic human problems? And there's a key there, non-organic. We're talking about non-organic human problems. Did you... No, no it's... Uh, I mean, because it... Right. Going back to the to the issue of it being mechanistic or moral, science doesn't have access to you know to, to investigate say moral issues. You right. can't you can't investigate this. You can't test them in the, in a laboratory. Very subjective. And if you look at the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you'll see all these like on a scale of one to ten. The doctor will turn to you and say, "Okay, on the scale, and you might have you guys might have dealt with this on a scale of one to ten or one to five. How depressed are you?" Well, I'm a four. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. You kind of, you, there's no d diagnostic value to that. On, even pain, on a scale of one to ten, where's your, where's your pain at? Well, I'm an, I'm an eight. Well, I might just be a big baby. I mean, the reality is that doesn't really communicate anything. No, no, it doesn't. It's, it's very subjective. And like I said, science doesn't have the ability to investigate, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the implications, say, or, you know, the, the, how people, 
even where morality comes from, it's, mm-hmm. it's inaccessible. Right. Yeah, that realm of knowledge is inaccessible to science. Yes. And so to 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 act as if um, you know psychologists in, in particular uh, you know can can diagnose you know based upon sort of investigation and you know um, and and you know examination of the physical person. Um, you know, and, he, and, and you know, particularly, you know, when people have problems, it's really just, you know, well, you know, this person, you know, manifests these problems, and you know, when I say this or when I ask them to do this, you know, I get these reactions. Therefore, you know, you know, that's what we should do. You know, we well, don't do that. We'll do this because you know, we tried that in the past and it didn't seem to work, and so we're trying this and it seems to maybe work better. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's. It's like I said. It's very subjective, and and it doesn't tell you anything about necessarily where the problem might be coming from. If it's a moral problem, if it's a spiritual problem, as I think many people, you know, in the world are experiencing, you know, suffering due to rejection of, of truth, due to rejection of you know spiritual truth, moral truth, and when you do that, I think it necessarily you know it stimulates um, um, sort of mental anguish and mm-hmm. suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, in people, if that's what's going on, there's no ability of science to investigate that and to accurately identify the cause mm-hmm. and treat it. And the, the honest ones will tell you that. They'll, they'll acknowledge, yeah. quite happily, not happily, they'll acknowledge that, that they have no they have no ability to investigate, to dive down into those things whatsoever. In fact, we'll go one step further. I'll get myself into trouble. Psychotropic <laughs> drugs, take depression, for example. There, There is no... There, there, I remember watching this video of, of uh, there was a psychiatric convention in New York City, a big, big international psychiatric convention of psychiatrists, and they were coming out the door at the end of the convention, and this guy was there, and he was interviewing these top psychiatrists as they were coming out of the building, and he asked them the simple question, is there a biological basis for depression? Mm-hmm. To, to a T, all of them, no, 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 no biological basis whatsoever for depression. So why then do drugs treat depression? Why do they help depression? Well, there, there's no difference between, statistically, between a drug treating depression and a placebo effect. You know, a placebo effect, basically a sugar pill, it looks like the pill, it, 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 but it's not. It's a placebo. It's, it's, a, it's a fake treatment. There is no difference, statistically, in, between the benefit of an anti, antipsychotic drug, like a, like a, a drug treated for, uh, designed for depression, and a placebo effect. None whatsoever. So why do we use them? Well, we use them because doctors do care. And most of them, and they do want to help you. And they've shown that this, this pill does, generally speaking, help at least a percentage of the population that's struggling from depression or anxiety or, or take whatever disorder you want. So, so we use those drugs to treat, but the reality is there is no statistical benefit shown. The irony is science is shooting itself in the foot. There's no benefit shown between that and the placebo effect. Right. It doesn't solve the problem. It's a band-aid on an issue. It's a band-aid. It masks masks problems rather than solving them. In other words, I mean, my my wife can speak much better to this. She studied it in college. You know, that that when a lot of antidepressants, what they do is they actually go into your body. There's certain, you know, uh, uh, glands or I don't know, I even know the right terms, but they release, you know, Certain chemicals that make you feel good when you're doing, when you do good things, when you're, when you're being productive. You know, we, you, I'm sure we've all experienced that. You have a good, really good day at work, saying you get back and you feel really good because you accomplish something. There's a certain chemical that's released by your body when you're doing good things, you know, that make you feel good. And what the, what the, what a lot of these, you know, what these antidepressants often do is they actually take those, those, um, 
chemical release receptors that, that release these, these good feeling chemicals and they turn them on, they open the spigot and hold it open, right? And, and, so, and so it makes you feel good despite the fact that you haven't solved anything in your life. Right. No, no, and, and then, and, 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 and that's why I object so much to the DSM telling us that if you're depressed for more than two weeks after your spouse dies, that you're, right. you, need, you need meds. That, that, I, that offends me and I object to it because it's not dealing with the cause of the depression, which obviously isn't medical. Right. It's obviously a, a relational, spiritual issue. And yet the DSM says you need drugs. And so to your point, you've got a neur- neurotransmitters. They're sending, sending, neuro, uh, sending information across the, this, this, this gap, right, synaptic gap right here. And the theory is that this is, these are two different neurological cells, brain cells. The theory is this side is not is not taking up the transmitted information from this side, and so we need to help them by giving them a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which 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 prevents, which which basically helps this side to pick up the the uh, the information transmitted from this side. And and it sounds very scientific if you use all the big words that they use, uh, lots of syllables and things. What they don't tell you is, oh, by the way, this is so small that the best microscopes can't even see it. They, they, they have no idea what they're talking about. They have no clue. It's a theory. There's no, there's no scientific way to establish that fact. It is completely theoretical, and there's nothing to prove it one way or the other. What they do know is, well, we pop the drug into your system, and, oh, by the way, it, w- it works. So you've got about 25, I think, last count, I think about 25 drugs that are used for depression, different types of drugs that can be used. And so if drug number one doesn't work, well, we go on to drug number two and see if that works. If that doesn't work, then we go on to drug number three and see if that works. Or if there's, if, if you gain 25 pounds as a result of taking drug number three, then we'll go on to drug number four and see if that works. Because there are side effects. There are actually debilitating side effects to antipsychotic drugs that, that, are, that are horrifying when there's no difference statistically between the, the efficacy of these 25 drugs and the placebo effect. But these 25 drugs come with massive side effects, many of them. The sugar pill has no side effects. Why would you take drugs at all? It doesn't, there's no, and and even the best psychiatrists will tell you, there's statistically no difference between drugs and counseling as far as the the efficacy of of, of helping somebody through these issues. There's no difference. Just drugs are quicker sometimes anyway. All right, anyway, turn with me to Proverbs 24 if you would. The question is, is Sarah, our depressed mom from last week, is she better off going to a secular counselor or a Christian psychologist as opposed to a biblical counselor or a pastor? That's really the question that we're getting down to. Integrationists, Christian integrationists would argue a resounding yes to that based on the status of general revelation. General revelation. So we're going to explore that a little more. This is a passage or one of the passages that our friend John Coe uses in defending his argument that we need to look to nature and use our brains to understand nature and supplement God's word with what God has shown us in nature. Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 32. Can someone read that for us? Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 32. I am asked by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. So what, what is Solomon saying there? It's, um, well, he, he goes on to say, looking at the instruction, this is, and he follows it up in verses 33 and 34, what the lesson is that he learned from observing this. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. 
shall, uh, so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. He's, he basically says the, the lesson is I observed someone's behavior and I took from it a, uh, uh, a lesson about how we should behave. Yes, yes. So he's looking to... Looking to nature, looking to somebody's behavior as they interact with nature, and he's drawing a conclusion, and he's writing this proverb or proverbial statement about that 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 lesson that he learned. So that Soko, again, the, the integrationists, they would argue that they look to, to to the wisdom literature to prove their point that even the writers of Scripture needed God's revelation through nature to understand the world. They needed God's revelation through nature to understand the world. Solomon, he says, turned to nature to learn more about God. Solomon uncovered moral knowledge, the skill to live well in all the areas of life without necessarily the assistance or benefit of divine revelation. He looked to nature, he looked to this person that was doing something in nature, and he drew wisdom, a a conclusion, drew information from that. Solomon, the smartest guy that ever lived, right? He's drawing information from nature, and he's writing scripture based on that information. He looked at the vineyard and he received instruction. Co states that there's absolutely no evidence that God directly inspired the sage or his writing. Huh. Rather, he says, Solomon discovered wisdom through his own personal observations and reflections. Another example, Psalm 19.1, David extols the glories of God's creation. He writes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's a wonderful scripture, isn't it? And he goes on to exalt the goodness of God in revealing himself to, to us in creation. He points out the regularity of God's creation, the rising and the setting of the sun. And, and, and that regularity is indicative of God's sovereignty. The, the, the sun rises, the sun goes down. God is sovereign. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The, those are sweet things, aren't they? It's, it's, they're sweet truths that we cling to and we believe that. It's, these things are indicative of God's sovereignty and control and rule and reign over this world. But that writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 2 verse 8, says something a little different. He says that the, the, the truth from na- truths from nature are not necessarily obvious to us. He says we don't see everything yet in subjection to Christ. The prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 48, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment. The insights of agriculture don't come from autonomous reason alone. I mean, what do we know about the revelation of, of, of the method by which God gave us his word, including the Proverbs? How, how did God give us his word? Generally speaking, they inspired human beings to write, to write that. They wrote inspired words, didn't they? The words in Scripture were given to us from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But why do we assume that Solomon observing nature and drawing conclusions is not inspired information, but it's Solomon's own autonomous reason? It's not. God has given him this understanding and interpretation of nature. Well, the, uh, I was going to say the ironic thing about that observation in regards to Solomon in particular is that. We're told in Scripture that God actually, st- I mean, it's all in stories that God says, I'm going to make you, you know, I'm going to inspire you. I'm mm-hmm. going to make you the wisest of all men. And so, I mean, we're, uh, you know, it's whatever wisdom comes from Solomon in this case is is 
was already we've already been informed that that Solomon's wisdom is inspired by God yep. specifically. Specifically, <laughs> yeah. He, he he already gave us that explanation up front, didn't he? Yeah. I asked for I asked for with God promised me anything I wanted, I asked for wisdom, God gave it to me. Yeah. Isaiah twenty eight, verse twenty six says this for 26 for 29 for he is rightly instructed his god teaches him dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge nor is a cot wheeled rolled over cumin but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod you know wondering where i'm going with this i know <laughs> does one crush grain for bread no he doesn't thresh it forever when he drives his cartwheel over it with the horses he does not crush it and he says verse 29 this also comes from the lord of hosts he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Our understanding of nature comes because of our understanding and knowledge from God. God gives us what we need to understand these things. It's God who instructs. Even in, the, even in nature, it is God who gives us the information we need. The wisdom of general revelation comes from an understanding of the patterns and principles that God has built into His creation. But that wisdom is gleaned from Scripture. From God, from the Holy Spirit. Whether you believe that, that the Holy Spirit is, and God is talking to you today, audibly even, or you don't, or you're, you know, continuationist, you believe that God is still talking today, or you believe that God is no longer talking today, that He, that He stopped talking with the 66 books of Scripture, either way, your understanding of what God is speaking or has spoken is, is measured by and, and enabled by the Scripture that God has given us. Even Solomon gleaned wisdom from nature, but only as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Only as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The problem, and we're out of time, the problem is that general revelation, quote-unquote, which is God revealing himself to us in Scripture, has been quietly redefined such that it's no longer about God, but is now more about creation itself. Not creation, Jerry, in the creation science sense, forgive me, but in the creation in general. General revelation has been quietly redefined to take God out of the picture entirely. And since science is progressive in nature, it changes over time. We get new information from science, don't we? They, sometimes they, they send out, we get new information that contradicts old information, right? Or, or discover something new. That science is progressive in nature. God's revelation is complete. And so to compare the two, or to, to, to confuse the two together, or to, to merge the two together is a mistake. Science, says one biblical counselor, is properly concerned with discovering the mechanics of how to fulfill the, the task God gave humanity to fill the earth and subdue it for His glory. Scientific research, even science, even research done within the boundaries of biblical truth, is not itself considered revelation. That shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, right? Scientific research is not God's revelation to us. Therefore, it must not be viewed as having the same purpose or authority as revelation. God's revelation. And that, that's key. Scientific research, no matter how good it is, does not have the same degree of authority as Scripture. It doesn't. Even research done within the boundaries of biblical truth. It's not inerrant. Integrationists make the mistake of giving science and God's revelation the same level of authority. That's where the problem lies. Christian integrationism is idolatry. It's idolatry because it centers all of its attention on man and man's issues. 
And it makes Christ the servant of man's emotional needs, his psychological needs. Effectively, they're trying to dethrone God and put man in his place. Calling on Jesus to meet our needs and using psychological tools to effect change. Basically, essentially, they're making man's will more important than the sovereignty of God over life events. We don't like what God has given us, so we're going to change something. They're trying to make man's. They're trying. Thank you. You're right. They're trying to make man man's will more important than the sovereignty of God. That's a problem. It's, uh, this was going to be a two week class. It's not going to be anymore. Sorry. Um, <laughs> next week we're going to talk about the conservative drift. Basically, the question is, how in the world do we come to a place where our churches embrace this kind of thinking? And the way it happened is in what was called the conservative drift, where liberal theologians started using more conservative sounding language in order to backdoor these these theories and, and, and beliefs into the church. So, anyway, thank you for being patient with me. Um, Nathan, do you want to close us? Sure. Thank you. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to sit down together and... and Look at this information to think things through. Um, reason, but reason from Scripture, um, and apply it to, to, to in areas that maybe we don't immediately think of. Um, you know, as being uh, as being spoken to by Your Word, but Lord, knowing that that Your Word is sufficient to speak you know, into our lives in 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 all areas, and uh, we just thank You that You have given us. Um, wisdom and the ability to, to meet our our needs, our spiritual and emotional, and even physical needs, Lord, often through 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 the giving of your word. And we uh, we thank you for your just tremendous blessing um, that you've given us, that gift. Um, and uh, Lord, we just pray that it would be a blessing to us this week uh, as we go out into the world and do the things that we have to do, that we would be guided and informed. Um, by scripture in everything that we do um, just uh, now Lord just thank you for the uh, this time that we together thank you for for uh, Pastor Phil and um, just the uh, just pray that you prepare us to receive uh, the teaching that we're going to get up in uh, during the sermon this morning during the service um, and just thank you for, for fellowship and fellowship of other believers this morning and just what a, an uplifting thing it is and an encouraging thing it is for each one of us Amen. Amen.